Thank you all for being here. We're going to jump right into Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. And uh, when we, we talked last night about Paul's role, and we, we summarized Paul's role, and we said, uh, no identity transformation, uh, and that Jews remain Jews in Messiah, and Gentiles remain Gentiles in Messiah. But there's something that's unique when, when this rule that, that I described as a translocal rule, in other words, it's a, it's a rule that Paul applies to uh, the Messiah followers in Ephesus, and he also applies to Messiah followers in Rome. It's a translocal rule. And what ends up happening with that is he does something to Gentile identity. He invents Gentile identity. And, and what I mean by that specifically is that Gentile identity in Messiah... A key part of that is to be connected to Jewish identity, to be connected to historic people of God, to be connected to more than simply what they associate more raised in uh, their ethnic identity, whether it's uh, a Scythian, Egyptian, a Greek, a Roman. And so in a lot of ways, uh, the fact that you uh, are part of, of this uh, congregation, you already have spotted that. So in some ways, I'm spending a lot of time reading a lot of texts for something that you all already know. So that's great. And uh, so hopefully I can uh, encourage uh, the pattern of life that you're already invested in and, uh, and maybe give you some new tools and insights to be able to share with other people that have questions about the pattern of life that you cho have chosen to follow as a matter of calling. Well, uh, at the same time, uh, those of you that are wondering about, you know, here, I've come out here and, and I'm enjoying what's going on. Are there practical takeaways for me? Well, in the uh, Altogether Different book, one of the things that uh, uh, John Kessler and I were wrestling with was uh, the way in which people bump up against each other in, in, these, in conflict, especially. And we, we looked at it as it relates to uh, in, in those that uh, are in Messiah, but also in the broader, uh, broader society. And one of the things that emerged is that people either uh, overplay their ethnicity or they completely ignore it. And so, uh, so when we looked at 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24, what we ended up finding out is that Paul basically uh, says these are important, but they have to be reprietorized under what it means to be a Messiah. And then that speaks into who I am as, as an American, who I am as a male, who I am as a father of four daughters, who I am as a husband, who I am as a son, who I am as someone from Ohio ministering in Michigan. Think about that. This is foreign occupied territory, right? And, uh, and, I've, and I've wondered about that on a regular uh, case, but anyways. So we're going we're gonna to jump into this, and uh, uh, thank you uh, for allowing me the opportunity to, to talk about some of these issues. Um, as I mentioned last night, my, uh, my doctoral supervisor said, you know, when you do this, only four people are going to ever hear about it. You know, basically him, uh, the two examiners, and my mom. And uh, so, uh, so, so my mom hasn't heard about it yet fully. She just wants me to play my saxophone and talk about being from Kentucky. And uh, that's, about, that's about good enough existing identities for her. So, all right. So uh, I'm going to jump into this, and I'll follow the same pattern that I followed last night. Uh, you should be able to, to pick up uh, how, the, how it flows, and we kind of critique 
what I like to call erasure interpreters uh, along the way and to, to give us new insights from Ephesians 2, uh, 11 to 22. We're going to focus primarily on uh, verses 14 and 15, uh, and, uh, and that you'll see why here in a minute. Mina Shakal. Mina is a friend of mine, uh, but uh, she has a book called Reading Ephesians. And Mina, in this, in this book, says that uh, she's interested in this question, uh, did Yeshua abolish the law completely or partially in Ephesians 2.15? And uh, so you can already see uh, the question she's interested in. My guess is we would say, well, no, of course. Let's move on to something else. Uh, but there are texts and passages that need to be addressed along the way. And so uh, her answer is yes. Yes, Yeshua abolished uh, Torah. And uh, so that raised questions for me. Uh, she was teaching at uh, the University of Wales uh, at the time, and, uh, and so I had a lot of conversations with her over, over these discussions. And so we're going to look at that, and then we want to talk about this question, what do Gentiles get from the Messianic community? I mean, if you think about this, what we're talking about is uh, a, a group of ex-pagan Gentiles, as we talked about last night, and they're attaching themselves to uh, a, a group of worshipers and adherents to the God of another nation, the God of Israel, and not the God of the Roman Empire. And so what do they get out of that? Well, there's some interesting uh, things. Part of what I do is, is something called social identity theory, and it looks at that part of who you think you are based on your group memberships, and that's really what we're talking about. So think about the groups you're a part of uh, in, in life and, and how that helps you to understand who you are. That's what, some of what we're looking at. And so if you think about in the Roman Empire, all the different groups that could be there. Uh, so, for example, one of the things that uh, scholars like to point out, this really cool word, this is the cool word for the day, autoxony. Now, I only had to use this word because I try to have more cool words than Henry does, all right? <laughs> and uh, so autochthony is this idea of heritage. And, it's, and so, so what ends up happening, especially as the Roman Empire goes through and they destroy different cultures, they end up basically putting kind of their Roman uh, culture in the, in the context. And so, for example, in Corinth, where most of my work in terms of the material culture is done is in Roman Corinth, uh, they really they take and dis disconnect uh, the history, uh, Greek history of Corinth, and replace it with Roman history. Um, I didn't get a chance to talk about it too much last night uh, because uh, we ran out of time, but one of the things they did is they took the water and they reversed it. Uh, if you needed water, you would go up to uh, the Acro Corinth, but there you had all the Greek shrines, and so it kind of reinforced Greek identity. What the Romans did, they came in and they reversed the water. If you're familiar with how they reversed uh, the river in Chicago, did something very similar to that, and they put it down in the Roman Forum and by the Pyrene Fountain, and now all of a sudden, when you needed water, you, were, you went to the center of Roman power in the colony in Corinth. And it was a way for them to reinforce their, their position of political power. And then they took the stories we talked about last night of, of um, Homer and Iliad and, and changed those a bit and turned those into Virgil's Aeneid to give them a story of roots. And so in a lot of ways, uh, one of the things that would be appealing uh, to uh, those that were struggling with uh, a lack of a history themselves, uh, the, the stability of, his, of the history of Israel would be very appealing. So that would be one of the things that Gentiles would, would get out about aligning themselves uh, with uh, historic Israel. Behavioral models. 
You just imagine uh, what's going on there, and we'll talk a lot about that, especially when we get to ways in which uh, Gentile identity Messiah is transformed. Uh, but uh, new, uh, new questions uh, in, in, uh, in the Roman uh, area that we're talking about, primarily the Mediterranean basin, there's something called the New Roman Woman. And a scholar, Bruce Winter, has done a lot with that, and it raised a lot of issues about inst- kind of instability with regard to gender identities. And it seems that uh, Paul is addressing some of these in Ephesians as well as in 1 Corinthians. And then what do Gentiles uh, get by aligning themselves with the Messianic community? Uh, from, from the Jewish symbolic universe, uh, they're, they're getting a whole new way of seeing the world. Wow, there's, there's a lot of benefits uh, to uh, aligning with this community. Jewish symbolic universe uh, is the idea that traditions that can be organized in such a way that, uh, that it pr- provides a symbolic way of viewing the world. If I say Brutus, Brutus is an organizing image for a worldview. Right? And if you don't know who Brutus is, then that's awesome. <laughs> if you do know who Brutus is, then we need to add that to our prayer list that you're thinking about Brutus uh, on Shabbat. Symbolic universe is an important phrase, and I just want to show you what, what a really complicated symbolic universe could look like, and I know you won't be able to, to see this, but uh, uh, we, can, we can get a PDF of this uh, for those that want to see what it looks like. So this comes from the Handbook of Social Identity in the New Testament, um, a, a work that I co-edited, and what, what this describes is what the, what the Israelite symbolic universe can look like. And so you're familiar with a lot of these ideas already, uh, but so for example here, Hebrew language, uh, kinship, okay, you can think about patriarchal family structures, land, focus on uh, the, the land of Israel, land of promise, uh, covenant praxis, so uh, a big part of what we'll talk about this afternoon is the way in which Jewish covenantal identity continues around mixed table and how that can work. And then obviously just in the religion part, what we think of as in terms of religion most, most generally. And so what ends up happening is these speak into uh, Boudou has a thing referred to as a habitus, and a habitus is it's not just a habit, even though that's kind of a way to think about it, but it's the way in which what we view and how we view the world feeds back into how we understand ourselves, and they're, they're mutually reinforcing each other all the time. And, uh, and so in this habitus, you can think about it in terms of uh, this uh, being uh, those uh, aspects of one's worldview that... Uh, main, help to maintain uh, Jewish covenantal status. And on the edges here, you see these contact zones, these zones of social interaction where you have outgroups, people that are, that are coming in and, and drawing near to Israel and uh, wondering about, well, so, so I thought it was just about a piece of land, but now you're telling me that the whole earth uh, belongs to, to God. Oh. And we're going to see here in the Ephesians passage how that's going to be helpful. And so, so the symbolic universe is a way to just think about all of those different aspects that can be organized together uh, to, to lay out your, your, your view on the world. All right, so, so Mina, in her work uh, reading Ephesians, uh, wrestles with this issue, and the question becomes, can Gentiles still identify with their existing identities? If you think about that symbolic universe and all that sacred canopy that was associated with that, is it even possible that Gentile identity continues? And so, not surprisingly, Mina and other uh, uh, scholars argue, no, that once you're in Messiah, you become Israel. And that's the argument that Mina and others put together. 
And, uh, and so uh, we'll talk a bit about that as we, as we move along. So Shakol says, no, uh, Roman identity uh, is, is erased, okay, because of the identity that they're wrestling with in that setting. Multiple identities and righteous Gentiles, even though they might fit in 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24, says they're not in Ephesians. Okay? And so rather, there's one overarching identity that's in view. And this brings us to our focal point, which is this issue of this one new human, this one new humanity, or this one new man, as it's sometimes described in Ephesians 2. And this is described in non-ethnic terms. So if you've, you've heard somebody, maybe they've, they've been talking to you of, about uh, the, the, the pattern of life that you, you practice and, and align yourself with, they say, well, isn't it just about the, the, the good news? That's all, that's all that should matter, right? It's just about being in Messiah. And all these other things are really irrelevant. That's basically the argument uh, uh, that, that Mina and others make. And uh, so what we want to look at then is, is basically three questions. Uh, did Jesus uh, completely abolish Torah? Second, does Ephesians pr- uh, present a one overarching uh, identity for its preferred uh, ideological perspective? And were these Messiah followers required to leave their Roman culture behind? All right, so when we think about uh, Ephesians, one of the things that happens is the Gentiles get a bad rap there. And, uh, and so uh, we have these verses like this in Ephesians 4, 17. Walk no longer as the pagans do. Okay. And then they'll also point to Ephesians 2, 11. You're our former Gentiles in the flesh. And basically they go to these verses and say, see, that once you're in Messiah, you are no longer uh, to be uh, seen as a Gentile and no longer identify as a Gentile. And so they suggest that Gentile identity then is a past one. And so I want to wrestle with that so, so that once now I'm in Messiah, am I still a Gentile or not? Or do I become uh, a Jew, for example? So on the other hand, Gentiles and Ephesians, uh, there's, there's other verses that we can point to. In 3.8, Paul's mission is, is focused on Gentile identity transformation, not the obliteration. I'll, I'll make that argument. In verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul was imprisoned for the sake of Gentiles. And then verse 6, Gentiles, through the good news, are joint heirs and fellow members of the same body and co-sharers the promise of Messiah Yeshua. And so as we go through this today, keep verse 6 of chapter 3 in mind because that's going to drive us to where we're ultimately going to go. And, uh, and we'll talk about how do we fit then under the sacred canopy of Israelite identity as Gentiles and Messiah, how our habitus is affected uh, by being in Messiah. So this raises the question, which one is it? Are we no longer Gentiles? Or are we these verses that say that no, the Gentile identity is still there? Right? So hopefully you're going to say the second one. All right? Or I should have gone to another type of uh, uh, gathering this morning. So, uh, so questions like, uh, what happened to their uh, existing identity? Are they former Gentiles? Are they Israel? Are they part of a third race or this third entity? Or are they in a state of liminality? Big word number two. I'm, I'm, I'm past Henry now at this point, right? So liminality is a really important phrase. Some of you may have heard this from other, other uh, studies that you've done uh, or in uh, other educational experiences, but liminality is this idea of being in between. You're, you're not really one and you're not the other. I, I would point to a certain pop singer that said, I'm, no, I'm not a girl, but not a woman, but I won't do that because I don't want to get you thinking about uh, those kind of songs. But if you know who that is, then you can say, it's that sense of where do we fit? And I can perfectly imagine 
these Gentiles trying to figure out, well, I'm obviously uh, not adhering to the provincial gods anymore. And if I'm a, a Gentile male, I'm being told by the Jewish leaders that I'm not to be circumcised. So where do I fit? And that's what liminality is. It's this in-between space. Now, hopefully you're already getting an idea of how this works for existing identities today. Uh, in the altogether different chapter, I focus on, on chapter 6 on contemporary uh, racial issues. Because in a lot of ways, what ends up happening is, um, in other settings, not, not here obviously, but in other uh, faith communities, they'll say things like, you know what, who you are as an African American doesn't matter. You're just an American. Right? And so you go, oh, well, that's easy for you to say, white guy, you know, kind of. In, and so because it maintains the dominant culture. And so these two approaches are called the particularistic and the universalistic. And uh, as it relates to applying these to issues of ethnicity, uh, the two kind of big dis- uh, debate partners these days are people that you may have heard about. Uh, one is John Piper, and the other one is Tony Evans. And John Piper, he says, Yeshua came to save us from ethnocentrism. So we don't need to focus on those things anymore. It's just who we are, Messiah. Tony Evans comes around and says, you know, that's really good for you, white guy in power, but my blackness matters. And so Tony Evans goes to the same passage in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, and he sees that once we recognize who we are in Messiah, that we can embrace the differences in ways that otherwise only lead to hostility. I don't know about you, but that's a vision that people can line up for, right? I'm, most of my, from my junior year on, uh, was, in, was in Cincinnati. Now, I, I know things are different from Columbus to Cincinnati. I pastored in, in Dayton, and they informed me that Dayton is not Cincinnati. So if Dayton's not Cincinnati, then I know for sure Columbus is not Cincinnati. You, I, was, I was looking at a little crawl about the scores, and the red score was like fourth on the list. I was like, you don't even appreciate the Cincinnati Reds. Well, nobody appreciates each them, but that's the difference, right? <laughs> so, uh, so the challenges, uh, uh, the racial uh, challenges in Cincinnati have, have been around for a long time. I, I live in Metro Detroit, and it's, it's very segregated. Okay? And so what, what I find are um, uh, my students get interested in this idea to try to figure out how who they are in terms of their ethnicity can be given back to them uh, and used for mission purposes. All right, so we'll talk more about that as we, as we close, though. All right, so Ephesian scholars really disagree on this issue of Gentiles. So Cole says there's no previous identity uh, uh, that exists. It's, it's just that we are simply now part of God's holy people. And she uses this language so there, there's no gender, there's no ethnicity. We're just kind of amorphous. Right, just kind of float, floating around, and that's, that's all that matters. Uh, James Dunn and his student Yi uh, say, you are former Gentiles, you are now the Israel of God. Right? And this gets you into Galatians 6.16, and uh, since Joe Willis helped you with that, I don't need to say anything else about it. Uh, Lincoln and Honer, uh, they, they kind of describe the, the approach that, what I would say more, if you're familiar with the like the broad evangelical community, they kind of fit in this category. That, um, that no, it's uh, not into Israel that you've been uh, put into, uh, but you're into an, an entity that transcends ethnicity. And it's often used um, in this kind of term, the, the capital C church. Okay? And that's what you're in. Uh, 
And so if you're a Gentile, you shouldn't identify uh, with your existing ethnicity, ethnicities. You should only be, say that I'm, I'm uh, you know, a follower of Yeshua. They would not use that language, obviously. And clearly, if you have um, a Jewish uh, background and heritage, you are a member of the, scary quote, church. You are not a member of Israel. And the, the, the best you'll get out of a group like this will be in the future, Right? This, is, this, is, this is a good identity for the future, but it's, it's not, not a covenant identity now. Right? So, so this one, this one I, I started that I slowed down a little bit, but this is kind of the one that I, I think that most, most preachers say on a regular basis, uh, that, and probably that you've heard somewhere along the way. Justin Hardin and William Campbell, my doctoral supervisor, uh, say that Gentiles uh, are close to the people of God without eradication of their ethnic identities. Now, I agree with that, um, and I want to say something just slightly different, so it's not that I'm disagreeing with, uh, with Justin or Bill. Uh, Dan Darko and Tim Gombas, uh, their approach uh, is, is something that's called, if you're familiar with it, it would be uh, New Covenant Theology. And uh, this, this is uh, any, most teachers that would teach at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Gordon-Conwell, Southern Seminary, uh, they're really going to argue for, for this approach. And it's basically the radical newness of who we are in Messiah is such that maybe something survives, but it's really minimal. Uh, but really, the newness is such that it just overwhelms uh, what's there existing. So me with Kinzer and Rudolph uh, just suggest a slightly different uh, step forward on this. That Jews continue to be Israel and Gentiles and Messiah are part of the commonwealth of Israel. Okay, and so, uh, I, so I want to focus on the Israel language, but highlight the commonwealth part uh, to see if that doesn't help us figure out how the existing identities function while we're still under the sacred canopy of the symbolic universe of Israel. All right, so uh, as I like to tell my students, uh, God's word, we eventually get to it. And so we've made it uh, now past the introduction. Here we go, verse 14. For he is our shalom. The one who made the two into one and broke down the middle wall of separation within his flesh. He made powerless the hostility, the law code of mitzvahot contained in regulations. He did this in order to create within himself one new man from the two groups making shalom. Again, I'm using the TLV version as we go through these. And so, if these verses mean abolishment, then existing identities, in this case Jewish, don't continue. And if you've ever talked to anybody, it doesn't take you too long before they're going to get to these verses uh, to, to, want to, to try to correct uh, uh, your, your perspective on a lot of these issues. But it also means that Paul forgot his own rule. Because as we saw last night, his rule in 1 Corinthians 7, 17 is that you are to stay in uh, the situation in which you were called. You're not to undo your circumcision. You're not to be circumcised if you're Gentile. And so Paul's evidently forgotten his own rule. All right, so, so how can we wrestle with these passages uh, to give us uh, some insights going forward in thinking about these? So uh, the, the first is the law code of mitzvot contained in regulations. So the main point here is to, is to realize that it's not clear what law is in view. I was presenting this in a faculty forum uh, at, at the seminary, and uh, one of my colleagues who wanted nothing to do with this, and he was uh, telling students in class why what I was teaching them was wrong. Okay, um, eventually the Lord moved him on to another uh, place to teach. Days of miracles are continuing, see? No. <laughs> and so we were I, was, I was presenting this, and you know what he said? He said, I think you might have something. 
I was like, really? I had to check to see if it was really him or not. It's because if it's just going to focus on Torah, you don't need all of these qualifiers outside of it. So that may be an indication to us that there's something more than this kind of wholesale abolishment uh, that is often put forward by these erasure interpreters. And so, uh, so it's not clear what uh, law is in view because of this uh, contained in regulations or the commandment and ordinance, depending on which uh, version you're reading from. This suggests that something else is in view. So it could be the elimination of Torah's condemnation, especially to Gentiles. Uh, it could be focusing on the hostility from verse 14, that the hostility of Gentiles under the law, which would then tie in similar to that. And if the, uh, what we do with the abolition language in verse 15, maybe it's the possibility of shalom uh, for Gentiles. So, so, so even the actual phrases that are there are such that maybe there's something else going on that we tend to think about. So let's look at some possibilities. Well, uh, this idea then could be, for example, that the Gentiles are no longer condemned by Torah and that God has extended shalom to those who were once afar off, the Gentiles. Right? So, so even if you're, you're, you're wondering about where this is heading, we can at least say, that's good news. right? That, that even, even my Gentile identity that was afar off has now been brought near through Messiah. So that's a possibility. So Torah's uh, condemnation of Gentiles. So most Jews view Torah uh, uh, as relevant for their kin. Remember in this, the symbolic universe that I showed you, one of the main of the five categories was kinship. But some view Torah uh, as being responsible, uh, for, that all humans were responsible to it. And uh, I was going to take time to read these passages, but uh, I won't. I can, I'm just going to give you the summary, uh, if, if that's okay. Uh, so, uh, so some Jewish writers who thought that all of humanity were responsible to Torah, uh, Sirach 24-7, uh, says that wisdom went and sought uh, rest among the nations, never found it until wisdom found Israel. Uh, but then the context goes and describes how uh, the nations then are still being held responsible for not recognizing wisdom. Uh, in biblical antiquities, uh, 11.22 specifically describes the Gentiles as being accountable uh, to Torah. Fourth Ezra 7.37-38, again, Gentiles responsible for the commands. And then second Baruch 82.6, that lawless Gentiles will go up like smoke. Right? And so, so there are... Um, uh, there's a tradition within uh, uh, some of these uh, writers that understood in some way Gentiles were, were going to be responsible. And, and uh, I, I, I be, I'm careful when I get into Galatians too much uh, since uh, one, one of my colleagues here is working on uh, Galatians 4. But when you get to Galatians, there's always this challenge of thinking about uh, in what way are, are the Gentiles under Torah? Because they're not, and then they are. It's kind of a weird mix in terms of what's going on there. And so, so I think that Paul is in some ways wrestling with this same tradition. Is, is he recognizing that there are those that see that, and, and there's this other side of that? All right, so in this understanding, Ephesians 2.15a is a statement of shalom now available to Gentiles who were in a hostile relationship under the condemnation of the principle of law. But now in Messiah Yeshua, they have shalom. Okay, so even if that's the way he's thinking, I think we can still get there uh, to, to uh, pull these verses away from uh, the erasure approach. So the qualifier uh, could also mean those traditions that kept Jews and Gentiles separated. Now, this is where I 
think it probably is, even though I can be slightly convinced about the first one. Um, but uh, I think this one makes, makes a, a bit more sense uh, for me. So, uh, so we start thinking about those things that keep Jews and Gentiles. One of the uh, uh, ones that come to mind all the, all the time in the discussions is the Temple Mount inscription uh, that said, for example, no foreigners to enter within the balustrade and forecourt around the sacred precinct. Whoever is caught with himself be responsible for his consequent death. And so, uh, so this is a, a reference that's, that's mentioned in Josephus, and it ends up being this... Uh, this kind of, and if you've, if you've been to Jerusalem, usually the tour guides will point to places where these were found or one, two, different, two different locations. But basically, a warning that uh, Gentiles, this is a no-go zone for you. Okay? And, uh, and so, so uh, the problem with this is this, uh, this, this, the court of the Gentiles and this balustrade, uh, it's, it's actually not a pro- prohibition uh, that's in Tanakh. Uh, and so it, it's something that's added later. It has perfectly good use. I mean, you, you, don't, you don't want a bunch of uh, idolatrous Gentiles running up on the Temple Mount. Right? It makes perfect sense uh, why you would have something like that and, and create uh, uh, that. And so this development of the court of the Gentiles then, uh, then is something that's not in Tanakh, um, but it also could help explain, for example, if that's what's going on, uh, the, the cleansing of Yeshua uh, in the area associated with the temple uh, of the court of the Gentiles. And maybe Yeshua abolished regulations that kept Gentiles afar from the God of Israel. So I, I know it's hard for you to see the picture, uh, but if you, if you get a sense of what we're talking about, uh, so this would be the court of the Gentiles, and this is the balustrade uh, that Josephus describes. And so you, you get these, these, these parts of the, uh, the temple mount uh, structured in such a way to keep... Uh, the Gentiles out. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to have time to develop it this morning, but maybe we can revisit it later, is uh, this may be what's going on in Acts 21. Right? And so you have the Ephesian Trophimus, and they're, they're saying, see, you're taking Gentiles into the temple. And it, and it could be something more along the lines that, that, uh, that Paul is not saying the temple no longer matters, because I don't, I don't think Paul would be saying that, but that he sees... Uh, this stuff is kind of the, the mother of all regulations added that's keeping uh, the Gentiles uh, away, as, as David Rudolph likes to describe it. So that's a possibility. So the, com- uh, the continuing centrality of these in the one new humanity suggests that total elimination uh, of uh, Torah is not in view, but most likely these uh, later uh, traditions that are added that Paul saw as a problem because they're keeping uh, the unity of Jews and Gentiles and Messiah uh, uh, in, in problematic ways. Other ways we can answer this is, is Ephesians 6.2. Ephesians 6.2, uh, it's, I think when I, I take students to this verse and then they just go, oh, I didn't know that was there. Yes, Torah still organizes communities of Messiah followers. Uh, Arrhenius uh, points to uh, the continued celebration of Passover on Nisan 14th, and uh, Polycrates thought that this was a necessity. This was not something that was just an indifference, something they could just do. All right? So, so this is, we're getting into hundreds of years uh, past, and they're still uh, organizing communal life in ways uh, that it seems that Paul was attempting to do in Ephesians 2, his rule. So the addressees are Gentile and Yeshua as addressed their obligations. So Shekol's claim that Yeshua abolished Torah doesn't stand. 
All right, and, uh, and so uh, I think that we can at least say she needs to revisit uh, her arguments. So the point is that continued Torah observance for Jews continues, and that existing identities continue to be relevant within the Messianic movement for Jews. Now, those of you that uh, were here last night, you know there's a section uh, for what I call the, the questions, thoughts, and reflections, and there's a place for you to, to write uh, in questions that we can, we can discuss uh, later today. Uh, and um, uh, so, so that's uh, a place there for you to, uh, to do that. So, uh, so then the question becomes, does the one new man signify incompatibility with the multiple identities approach uh, to Yeshua? So Tim Gombas says, God is no longer working through one nation. Uh, Tim Gombas teaches at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. Uh, he says, there, there are no divisions in the new creation people. Mina Shekol, uh, the one new man, obliterates the categories Jew and Gentile. Okay, so you can see how, how this just becomes the standard uh, approach of, of interpreters. So Jews and Gentiles and Messiah form one body, co-citizens of, and notice what it has in verse 12, the commonwealth of Israel. So Marcus Bart says, the test of unity and difference is the common life of Jews and Gentiles under the good news. So we think about what, what uh, Bart's driving us to is that if you want to figure out if you really believe that there's that kind of unity, uh, Messiah, look at the way in which we make places for diverse patterns of life. Now, you notice that, that I, I usually don't uh, capitalize the G. Uh, we'll talk about this later, but nobody's walking around in the first century saying, I'm a Gentile. Um, the Gentile works a couple different ways. One way it works, it's the Romans referred to the defeated nations as the Gentiles, the ta-ethne. And so if they heard that, that was a re- way to reinforce their defeated. Um, uh, but also uh, uh, Jewish writers and speakers would use this as a way to say Jewish and non-Jewish. But the word's not really even used in the uh, singular. And so what do we mean by, by that is what we see in 1 Corinthians, uh, the term will sometimes be switched with Greek. And, uh, and, and, uh, but, but the idea is to think about uh, fill in the blank with, um, with your ethnicity, okay, as, uh, that might help to, to, to get the focal point here. Uh, so Rudolph says, uh, when we, to get at this, the best way to think about it is that it's, it's not that in, in Messiah Gentiles become Israel, uh, but they're part of the commonwealth of Israel. It's a multinational expansion of Israel proper that has emerged in the form of Messiah's body. Uh, and so the, we hit this verse later, we're going to come back and just mention it again. So this mystery is that the Gentiles are joint heirs and fellow members of the same body and co-shares of the promise in Messiah Yeshua through the good news. So this is Paul's invention of Gentile identity among Jewish communities. And that's what I was getting at earlier. I think that what Paul's doing is he's going to say, if Gentile identity continues in Messiah, where that's most obvious is among Messianic communities. And, and, and so, so what is it doing? It's pointing us to the realization of what, what God was doing all along and drawing uh, all the nations to him. And so then does this one new humanity replace existing identities? Uh, and so uh, this is probably the one of the Worst translations, there's a couple of them in the, in the New Revised Standard Version uh, that really creates problems. And so the New Revised Standard Version here says that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. And so this is the go-to and say, see, this one new humanity replaces all existing 
And so it's now just this kind of um, amorphous, just big blob, and uh, all of those parts of who we were before are gone. Well, first of all, there's no Greek underneath in place of. And so uh, the, the translators had to put something there to make sense of the Greek. So they're in, in some ways not doing wrong in what they're doing. That's the way the language functions uh, when we put it into English. Uh, but it gives rise to replacement theologizing because this just goes there and it's, see, it's seen that way. And so the phrase out of the two instead of in place of the two suggests that the two groups remain intact. And so instead of saying in place of, out of, so this one new out of the two, thus making uh, peace, uh, does nothing uh, against the underlying Greek text, uh, but actually makes a better connection of continuity between the two rather than this uh, implicit discontinuity that's there. All right. So, um, so Bart. Uh, says one new man consists of two. So on this reading, multiple social identities continue within the one new humanity. And so Ephesians 5, 33 is just a great example of it. All of a sudden, there are different instructions based on existing identities. Uh, one flesh in, in Ephesians 5, 31 makes concrete the teaching of 2.15, that different identities are relevant, though reprioritized. Okay. And so, so you just think about it, uh, in your marriage, you're one flesh, but you continue uh, in, in all of your differences. Right? And in some ways, one of, the, one of the more frustrating parts is when uh, a person loses themselves in the other in person in their marriage, rather than being able to see their uniqueness uh, expressed in their oneness, their one flesh uh, relationship. Okay, so this one new humanity then is uh, uh, when, when Henry and I were talking about in prep, said we want to dismantle the idea of one new humanity uh, because it just, it's, it's an assumption that just that really creates no place for the kind of diversity of in Messiah uh, experiences uh, that even that we're experiencing here. So the point is that multiple identities, they're evident uh, in Ephesians, uh, uh, contra to what uh, Chacol says. So again, there's a place for you to, to jot in uh, questions uh, for us uh, to uh, discuss later as well. So uh, we're, we're about out of time, so I'm just going to summarize a couple, a couple of things here as we end. So the question becomes then, what about my Roman culture? Does any of it go? We saw those verses earlier, right? What happens with those? And so, uh, verse 11, Therefore keep in mind that once you were Gentiles in the flesh, you were called uncircumcision by those called circumcision, which is performed by the flesh of hand. Uh, so I, I tell you this, indeed I insist on it, and that, Lord, walk no longer as the pagans do, stumbling in the futility of their thinking. So the wholesale embracing of Roman social identity seems to be excluded. Right? And I would say I agree with that. The wholesale embracing is not the idea here. So my claim is that Gentile identity um, uh, continues, but it doesn't continue fully. Now, we didn't get to talk about this last night, but I had mentioned it a couple times, enough for us to be able to start to remember these four on a regular basis. Uh, this is the IICU, the immorality, idolatry, unscriptural thought patterns, and cultural boasting. And so these become the areas where, in, in Paul's writing, where he says Gentile identity continues except in these areas. And we'll spend a whole session talking about these four and seeing uh, how, how that works out. Well, in Ephesians, we see this right, right in, the, in the, the letter itself in the Roman household code. And uh, so what ends up happening is the clearest example of existing identities continuing, but reprioritized. 
The Roman household code, it was basically, we talked about a rule, right? Paul's rule in all of the, uh, the congregations. And the household codes function very similar. This is the way the Roman household would be organized. What Paul does, is says in Messiah, the Roman household code is not obliterated, but it's reprietorized. And now all of a sudden, husbands are to love their wives. That was not part of the Roman household code. Oftentimes, the husband, the Roman husband, would be maybe in his 40s, a military veteran coming back from war, and would probably be married to someone in their teens. Okay? And so there really wasn't that kind of a, uh, what we would think of in terms of a loving relationship. They were basically there to, to create babies. And so, so, so Paul's coming in thinking slightly differently about the husband-wife relationship because of his reading of, of uh, Torah. So Darko uh, basically says, no, he, even there he's just re-inscribing. And Gombas is like, well, no, he's actually subverting. Okay, and so they, they go back and forth on this, and I'm, I'm going to just pass on that for right now. But either way, whichever approach that it's being taken is... Uh, he's using existing Roman ideas to form the community. So Paul's not the sectarian saying, uh, let's pull away. He's looking for ways to engage the broader culture while maintaining a life of holiness and a community of holiness. So they're to define their MSI experience in the context and not to the exclusion of their Roman identity. So as you think about this and some of the walking points that you can maybe start to think about as, as we finish is what would it mean for you to, to help to make salient, remember we talked about salience as the idea of an identity ready to be acted upon. Uh, what would it mean for you to, to, to live in Messiah in the context of your existing identities rather than the exclusion of them? And for some of you, that means it's going to be a unique constellation of uh, patterns of life, it's going to look different. And when, when your approach to life looks different than somebody else's, you know trouble's coming, right? Because they, everybody, they want everybody to be the same. And, uh, and so Paul, for some reason, goes this, goes this way. And we're going to see what his reason is later on. So um, do these verses then set aside uh, Roman identity, 2, 11, and 4, 14? So uh, flesh, I just want to mention this because I, I, I want to talk about this later. Flesh is not always a negative term for Paul. When people go to 1 Corinthians 10, 18, they say, see, Paul thinks everything about Israel is negative because they're Israel according to the flesh. But when you read the context, and we'll get to it in this afternoon, is that it's a neutral term. The reason people think negatively about flesh is because that's kind of the, the main way in which sin occurs in our life, right? And, uh, and, and so uh, that creates, well, it's one of the reasons why one of the first heresies uh, that emerges is Gnosticism that wants to separate out embodiment from uh, our, our transformed life. Uh, so uh, it's, it's, a, it's a label for male Gentiles. And so uh, the Gentile marker is still intact. Um, and, and at the same time, they're also fellow heirs. So no longer live as Gentiles live. And so this one I think makes sense, but I at least want to just flag, remember we talk about all the different possibilities, at least the cultural boasting is going to be part of it. And, uh, and so, so this is where we would say anybody in Michigan who likes University of Michigan football, they need to deal with this, right? Because nobody in Columbus would boast over Ohio State's football team or any such thing like that. So it doesn't mean that the Ephesians no longer consider themselves Gentiles and Yeshua to be Gentiles. They're not to behave like the Gentiles do, okay? And so that's the key. There are aspects that need to change. 
And so Paul's inventing in 2.11 and 4.14, Gentile as a micro-identity that describes their pre-turning life and the transformation that should be evident within the Messianic community. So this identity is translocal, and it mediates this non-Jewish idolater, who they used to be, with now they are members of God's household as Gentiles and not as Israelites. And so that is a mess to try to figure out. And so halakha is what Paul lays out. And there's diverse and different halakhic approaches. Halakha, this case-by-case application of biblical law. We talked about last night and we looked at in in 1 Corinthians, this walking in the ways of the Lord connections and what it means for us to, to walk daily and to make those decisions about the gray areas in which we live. And that's what we're going to be talking about Um, in the next session, is those gray areas. And uh, Paul serves up hot and ready for us uh, some really helpful instructions for the ways in which Jews and Gentiles and Messiah can eat together and live together in unity. Thanks.